0: I always have a conviction as I sing that song. I love the song. It's beautiful. But I always have to remind the Lord as though he needs to be reminded. This is just a prayer. It's uh, it's not my life. Um, and I don't say that in a sense of I don't want it to be my life. I do. I want to be able to sing with a holy, pure heart, all to Jesus I surrender. And then there's something and again this is not me like critiquing a song because i i do love the song but i i'm not sure is it all to jesus i surrender that is exactly what he wants and what i mean by that is this like it's not a matter of me giving everything i have to christ it's giving everything i am to christ because in, 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 for instance, and I could take, you know, a few different options um, between Mark or Luke 9:23, but I'll go with Matthew 16:24, where Jesus says, "If any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me." Right? And that second part of denying self, it doesn't say self-denial, because self-denial is as a swimmer. David's a swimmer too, and and Ty, when we're we're swimming, when we're in season, what do we do? Well, we we go to bed earlier, if we're smart, because we wake up way before other athletes usually. I know when I was a swim coach, let alone a swimmer, I would get up around, well, I'd get up at 2.45, I guess, to leave the house at 3.30 to go pick up swimmers so we could be in the gym for dry land before a workout, and then there's school, and then after school another workout, so you're going to bed early. Sometimes I'd get it later. Sometimes it's 345. All right. It's a nice sleeping in, right? Um, certain foods we wouldn't necessarily eat, although swimmers really can eat any food they want to eat because it's just going to get burned. But that said, there's still foods I didn't eat. My social life was limited, right? That's self-denial. That's not what Jesus is talking about. It's not self-denial. See, because sometimes we think, man, if I'm going to be a good Christian, I got to deny myself of a bunch of stuff. Here's the thing. If you're going to live in self-denial, you're going to miss a lot of things that God wants. It's not about that. It's about denying self. In other words, you're not in charge anymore. So now it's not all to Jesus I surrender. It's uh, I surrender myself to Jesus. Now he's in control and he's the one making the decisions. And how does he do that? He does it through his word ultimately. But the spirit of God that guides us into all truth, as John 16 clearly articulates as well. So. That's all on side, but thank you for that great song that made us reflect once again. And it really is a, a beautiful prayer that we ask the Lord. With that said, let's turn our Bibles to Mark 14, Mark 14. And as you go there, we're going to kind of pick up where we left off, but in a different direction. In the first uh, session together, we looked at what does God see when he sees us? What's the value that he associates with the soul? But now the question becomes, what's the value that we see when we see the Lord Jesus? And the other question would be this why do we miss the value that actually is in the Lord Jesus Christ? I started off the last session with a story, and a story that I purposefully left you hanging on. And I talked about this bracelet that I wear, and how we don't necessarily see the value that others see, because clearly, I told you if you offer me $1,000, I would not accept it. I still have never had anybody come up and offer me any significant sum of money for just to test me on it. Don't worry. You will not lose out. I'm not selling it. You might be like, man, how far can I push him? It's priceless to me. And I'm going to tell you why. Years ago, when I was uh, 19 years old, I had the privilege of studying abroad in the land of Egypt. And when I went to study in Egypt, uh, I, I went for a semester, but... I didn't go to study. That's terrible to say for teachers. Um, I only went because I saw something else in the brochure. And it was the opportunity to work at a children's home, an orphanage, started by Mother Teresa. And so uh, when I got to this academic program, which was a political science program, if you know me at all, you know that that is probably the last thing I'd ever choose to study. My brother is a professor in political science. And he was quoted in my university textbook by the time I arrived in college. That's not cool at all to read about your brother when you go to college. So don't think that's cool. But uh, anyway, so all I would say is, like, I got a side in my family, but not me. Um, I was a business major, master's in uh, community development, nothing to do with political science. But all I say is this program was a political science program. But I took all my electives so I could go do this program. To work at this home. Well, when I got there, I told him, I said I don't really want to tour Egypt on weekends. I want to just work in this children's home. So can I be exempted from all the tourism stuff? And so they gave me permission. So Tuesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays I worked at a children's home, and I was given six newborn babies to take care of: five girls, one boy, all two to six months old, and uh, and most of them were very small, almost like a, a preemie or a little. I mean, not quite preemies, but it's a couple of them were preemies at birth, and take care of them. So feed them, burp them, change their diapers, put them to bed, just take care of six newborn babies all at once as a 19-year-old guy. So that was what I did. And of course, I fell in love. I fell in love with six of them. Uh, two of my five girls were little twins named Myrna and Jacqueline. And if you saw a picture of them, which I certainly can show you later because they're in my Bible as well. They were just beautiful, beautiful little girls who smiled almost incessantly which is uh not necessarily the case of most newborns in fact they were the little girls that if you just looked at them they would beam and this was very nice when you're dealing with six babies who are not always so joyful to have two that you could count on to be happy and so these were my little girls and and time went on i had been there a couple of months and one day i got to the children's home and something was missing specifically someone was missing my two little girls weren't there i only had four of my babies and so I said to one of the sisters, one of the nuns there, I said, uh, where are Merida and Jacqueline? And they said, well, actually, um, they're strong enough to survive now. And so their parents are still alive. And so they've now been returned to their family in Cairo. You've got to understand something about Cairo. Cairo is a city of about 22 million people. I hear the whole Miami area is only about a third of that. And that's accounting all these areas of Miami. Now, when I say 22 million, it's a safe estimate. It depends on how many neighborhoods you want to count. I could say 30 million. I'd still be accurate. I could say 16 million. I'm just counting downtown. So you, you make the choice, okay? So I'll say 22 million. So all of a sudden, now my babies are somewhere in the city of 22 million people, and I realize I'll never see them again. So I used to go to their crib, and I would kneel with their empty crib, and, uh, and I'd pray prayer and I prayed a very simple prayer for my little girls. I said, Lord, bring somebody in their life to love them and bring somebody in their life who will share the love of Jesus with them. That's all just those two things. And of course, memories just swirled concerning them. And time went on. I, I finished the program, went back to Greenville, South Carolina to finish up my university two more years on my wall of the dorm room. I had uh, all these uh, pictures of my babies up there, including Meredith and Jacqueline. And I kept praying for them during my junior and senior years. Well, I graduated, and one month later, I moved to the Middle East. I wasn't moving to Egypt, moving to a different country, but as the Lord would have it, bombs started falling on the school where I was supposed to work. It shut down, and all my plans were gone, so now I was stranded back in Egypt. I said, okay, God, my plans changed, but yours haven't, so here I am. Well, I started working in Egypt, and six months after I arrived in Egypt, it's now December of 2006. The story started in January of 2004, so December 2006... I'm there, I'm working with refugees, street children, and uh, international youth, and I decide one day I'm just going to go walk the streets of a random neighborhood, uh, a a slum community called Garbage City in Cairo, or Mancheit Nasser in Arabic. And as I was walking this neighborhood, just meeting people, uh, a 10-year-old girl stepped out of a house. Her name's Lubna. And she calls out to me in French, which is strange because Egypt's an Arabic speaking country. And she says in French, Est-ce que tu parles français? Do you speak French? Now, I'm a French speaker from birth, being in Senegal. And so I was surprised and very happy to meet a French speaker because my French is way better than my Arabic. And so I said, Yeah, I do. So we started talking. And she said, Would you come meet my parents? So I went into her house and met her parents. And her parents were excited because all their kids study in French at a Franciscan sister's school. And so they said, would you consider coming and tutoring our kids once a week or however, however often you're willing? so Because we can't help them with their homework. We don't know what it says. So I thought, great opportunity to share Christ's love and just to love on these kids. And so I decided to start going there uh, at least once a week. And, and so I was tutoring these kids. I had about 15 in a gutted out room in Cairo. And uh, here we are studying French. Well, one day, this is now March of 2007, so we are approximately uh, 38 months after the story started. I'm tutoring all these kids in this random gutted out room. And as I'm doing it, a couple little toddlers walked into the room. Now, you have to understand that I look at people's eyes, and I look at people's eyes for a reason. It has nothing to do with anything I've said up till now, but there's a reason I look in your eyes as well. And so when I looked at these little girls' eyes that walked into the room... I stopped teaching French and I said to Lubna, I said, who are those little girls? Because I immediately recognized something in their eyes. And I was like, I've seen those eyes before. And she said to me as though to brush off the question, she said, those are my little sisters. I said, no. What are their names? And she said, well, that one is Myrna and that one's Jacqueline. And I realized that in a city of 22 million people, in a country I never planned on living in it again my whole life, that God had not only reunited me with my two baby girls, he had placed me inside their home with access. And he had made me the answer to my own prayer that I was the one to love them and I'm the one to share the love of Jesus Christ with them. It was years later down the road that I guess these little girls found this in the garbage and they had held on to it. And then when I came to their house, I see them every year. They gave me this gift. And so this is a a gift I have for my little girls that live in a slum in Cairo. And so it's got a value to me that that's priceless. But that's because when I look at it, I think of them. And I just wonder, what value do we miss in the Lord Jesus Christ? we don't see what's actually there we just see a fragment of what's there and what i want us to look at in this story now is a woman who saw what the rest of the world missed at this point point. and because of it what she did jesus says will be a memorial to her until i believe he comes again and even throughout eternity and i believe that we can live that same life today but we have to see what everyone else is missing So let's pray and ask God to open up our hearts and minds, and then we'll go to the Word of God. Father in heaven, as we come to your Word, we acknowledge that without you, we can do nothing. We can't see what we need to see, and so open up our hearts, open up our minds, teach us. But more than just teach us, Lord, uh, give us a love for your Son. You say love comes from you, and that we can't love except it comes from you. And so, Lord, we're asking, please fill us with your love that we might love you as we ought. And if we love you as we ought, we'll love others as we should. So, Father, do in us what you need to do to make us look more like Jesus Christ. I pray this to his glory and in his name. Amen. Mark chapter 14. And I'd like to begin reading in verse three and we'll go down to verse nine to begin with. It says, well, Jesus, he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper As he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, a pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave And this is the word of the Lord. This story has so much, but we're just going to pull out a few things. As officially, I have 23 minutes, but I think by grace, I'll take 30. (laughs) Three things. The first thing I want you to see and the first thing that we need to ask ourselves in regards to Jesus Christ is this. Notice she gives. Her best to Christ. When I say she gives her best to Christ, there's a few things about this best that she's about to give that I want us to take note of. One of the first things that I see is this it says, When he was reclining at the table, the woman comes with the alabaster flask, right? And what does she do? She breaks this flask. Now, that tells me something about her planning. When she gave her best, the first thing about her best is she planned to give her best. Like, in other words, she didn't just somehow come and randomly say, what can I give him? Like, you don't carry a, 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 a flask of pure nard around everywhere you go. It's like there's a plan to give it. And so I want you to see that if you're going to give God your best in life, you know where I'm going with this. You've got a plan to. It won't happen by accident. If you want to give him your skills, if you want to give him your education, if you want to give him your relationships, if you want to give him your assets, if you want to give him your heart, it will not happen by accident. Anyone who has ever had their life used up for the Lord Jesus Christ did not haphazardly have their life used up for the Lord Jesus Christ. They gave their life to Jesus Christ. Are you planning to give your best for him? Are you planning to give your children for him? There's a great song by uh, Keith Green. And if you've ever listened to Keith Green, either love him or hate him because every song is conviction central. He has a great song called I Pledge My Head to Heaven for the Gospel. If you haven't heard it, go look it up later. I Pledge My Head to Heaven. The second verse is I Pledge My Wife to Heaven for the Gospel. And the third verse says, I pledge my son to heaven for the gospel. I think a lot of us would rather our children become millionaires and live next door to us than go to Syria and die preaching the gospel and see souls saved that would have never heard. I'm not a dad yet in a physical sense, although I feel like I have thousands of children I would rather Marna and Jacqueline be violently killed one day for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ because they love him so dearly than to become lawyers, doctors, presidents, and have barely a care of their soul. You might say, Nathan, that sounds wrong. I don't care if it sounds wrong. Is it wrong? I want lives lived for eternity. If God ever chooses to give me kids, I've already started praying a prayer, don't give me a kid. Unless my kid's life will be used up for the gospel. Lord, if you're gonna entrust something to me, it better be something I give right back to you. I'm engaged to be married as of like a month. You know what I you know you know what I told the girl before? The girl you say she has a name yet, but right now let's just refer to as the girl. Um you know what I told her? Before proposing, I said, please know that we can't even think about marriage if you're not willing to be a widow early in our marriage. Because my first call is to follow Jesus Christ. I love you, but I will always love Jesus Christ more than you. And because of that, hopefully I can love you as I ought. But it's a planned thing. Because my will, my flesh doesn't say that. Mm. The Spirit of God says that. Because the days will come when I don't want to. And that's when the question is, who's controlling me? Me? Or the one to whom I'm surrendered all? Mm. All of myself. And that's not me, guys. Don't look at me like, oh, wow, you've done that? No, no. It's a daily thing. Mm. Luke 9.23, right? That verse I quoted from Matthew... He adds the word daily. Take up your cross daily. Tomorrow, I could lose perspective. I have to again surrender to the word of God. So notice the first thing she does here is she gives her best, but this best is a planned gift. It's not like, oh, yeah, let's see what happens. So with the plan, but then there's something else. We see that it's pricey. It's planned and it's pricey. She does it like this best. It's worth so much. She's say, well, that's my kids. Yes. It's the most valuable thing that God's given you. It's lives, souls around you. Like, again, think about even the the, the possessions God's given us. Like, she brought something that was worth 300 denarii. That was probably her priciest thing. She had about a year's worth of wages. So take whatever salary you make and say, it's worth an entire year. It was valuable. I'm sure she looked around and said, what can I give? Oh, that's not worth enough. Do I have something more valuable? Yes. My alabaster flask of pure nard—it was pricey. It was also precious. Why do I say it was precious? Because this pure nard was not just like a a a a pricey thing. It was something that usually represented uh, well for her. We don't know what her occupation was, but we have ideas of it. But it probably was in some way, uh, what what do we say? Um, inheritance, or you could say like future savings our bank account, uh, 401k. In other words, on a rainy day, when things aren't working out, I have that pure nord I can go sell. It stays good, but it was precious. It had a representation deeper than that. And with the preciousness, it was also personal. And when I say it's personal, what do I mean by that? Like a lot of times this was, uh, not passed down but it was in a sense like i said an inheritance so it was personal in a sense of it represented uh, almost like a a relation life. maybe somebody had died or whatever the case was but oftentimes these were given to women and this was a treasure for them that represented the family that they were in we could also say it was pure when it was we it says it right there in the word of god it's pure nard it's not diluted so she's giving something that is absolutely the best. How many times have we done, I, I just speak to myself here, I don't know if it's you, but like you're going to give a gift to God and you give him, you give him like not the best, like you know the best you're keeping for yourself. It's like giving him the sick sheep. It's like those sacrifices, oh, this sheep's going to die anyway. Let's go sacrifice him quickly at the temple before he does. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I, I do that. I do that in my life frequently. It's like, and I know I'm doing it. I know I'm giving him less than my best. I know I'm giving him the second best time. I know that he's not the priority in the situation. And the thing is, I justify my priority. I say, well, it's good. It's, it's good to be busy. It's, it's good to be about that work. But the Lord has been pushed back. So it's pure. And there's something else. This is really important. And this brings us to the second point. But it's going to be the sixth point of the of sub point of what this gift is. She gave her best. But the second thing is this, she gave all of her best. So in other words, when you find that best, it's not just saying, God, you're worthy of my best. You're worthy of it all. And when I say she planned this, notice how precisely she planned it. And so the sixth thing is, her best was poured out. When she came with that flask, what did she do? She didn't come and like say this is a flask. She didn't come and say, all right, you're worthy of, I think, three quarters today. No, what, what, what words used? she broke it. If you break a flask, there's no going back. Once she broke that flask, it was all coming out. She planned beforehand that she was going to give it all. Why? Because she saw who Christ was, what he's worth, what he's done for. will come to that in a minute. So she breaks it And I I just wonder, like, what needs to be decided in your life beforehand when you go home today, when you look at what God's given you, when you look at the family he's given you, the home he's given you, the things he's given you, the heart he's given you, the skills he's given you, the the, the giftings he's given you, the opportunities he's given you. What does it look like to give that back to him and not just to give it to him, but give him all of it? What does that look like? You're going to need to get together with your wife, with your husband, With your kids and talk about it among yourselves and say, what is the best we have? And how does it look in 2017 to give it to the Lord? You know, we can say what we want about her investment. But the fact is, that was one of the safest investments ever made. Because to this day, here we are, a couple thousand years later, talking about one woman's wise investment. And I believe that you have the opportunity throughout all eternity to have your investment talked about. But a lot of us are going to miss that investment. We see it today, but we don't really trust that it's real. We say we do, but our lives don't say we do. Is Christ worth it? I'll say it like this. I can guarantee you one thing, and this guarantee I'm willing to die for it. Like, the guarantee is this, you will never stand before the Lord one day and say, I gave you too much. That will never happen. But I'm quite convinced that many of us will say the opposite. I missed out. I had so much. Why are we asking, what must I give? Shall we not change the question to what can I give? Now, how much am I supposed to give? How much can I give? How little can I live on? Like, this is the heart of someone who's in love. It's not like, how much do I need to give to appease someone in my life? No. How much can I give to show them how much I love them? And this is the heart of Jesus Christ toward us. May it be our heart towards him. And so we see that she doesn't just give her best. She gives all of her best. But there's a third thing. And that third thing is this. What happens with the disciples? They immediately pipe up and they say, why this waste? She could have sold it for 300 denarii, give it to the poor. Why this waste? Why this waste? You know what's beautiful in this passage, in my opinion? It's not what is there, it's what isn't there. You never hear the voice of that woman. She never defends herself. She never gives any reason she lets her life speak. And that's the third thing is she gave her best. She gave all of her best. And third thing, she didn't care what the world thought. If you care what the world thinks, the first two probably won't happen. And when they say, why this waste? Let me say something. and I'll try to say it articulately so that we can uh, just kind of process it. All right. If the world is not looking at you and saying you're wasting your life, you're probably wasting your life. I'll say it again, okay? If the world's not looking at you and saying you're wasting your life in some way, I don't mean in every way. I just mean in some regard. If they're not looking at you and saying you're wasting your life, because they weren't saying that about everything in her life. They said she wasted that. So I'm not saying everything you're doing, they're going to say you're wasting your life. Just in your best. If the world's not looking at you and saying you're wasting your life, you probably are wasting your life. Because worship in action will look like waste to the world. And this is an opportunity. This is not a punishment. We get to receive. I mean, isn't it beautiful that everything we have is from the Lord, right? We move, we breathe in him. Without him, I have no life. Without him, I'm not up here. I've got no voice. He can take my voice away the very next second if he wants. He can take away every opportunity to ever share his word. I have nothing apart from him and I am not ignorant to that. Nothing. I can't can't read the word of God, let alone understand the word of God, let alone talk about the word of God, let alone obey the word of God. If it weren't for him. And then for some reason he gives you what he gives you and it's hard to give it back. It's his. But he allows us to choose. Will we show him we love him with what he's already given us? And so we see this, this woman not care what the world thinks of her, but then pause, just click pause on this whole thing. And I want to ask a simple question, why? Why does this woman do all this? Well, let me tell the story from a different angle. There was someone else who gave his best for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his best. He gave his best for us. But did he only give his best for us? No. When he sent his son to the world, what did his son do? His son went all the way to the cross of Calvary. And on the cross of Calvary, he did not just give his life But he gave more than just that. He drank the cup of God's wrath. So we never have to experience separation from God like we talked about a little earlier. Like again, God didn't just give us his best. He gave us all of his best. But then Isaiah 53, what does it tell us about Christ when he was on the cross? He was a little lamb led to the slaughter. and As a sheep before it shears is dumb. What's the next line? So he opened not his mouth. I don't know about you, but when I read Luke 23 and I hear those insults from the cross, and I, especially the one, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. I don't know about you, but there's something inside me that boils. just like, just do it. Mm -hmm. And then I realized if He had done it, I wouldn't have a Savior. He stayed on the cross because of me. See, He didn't answer the world's critics. Because He loved me, and He loves you. You're His coin who he came to redeem and because of this truth we have a wonderful savior and because of this truth we now have the opportunity to to tell him we love him through our life but he opened not his mouth but that's not the end of the story you see there's something that i'm skipping in all of this and we'll come to that in just a minute we haven't even read that part yet but I want you to see, it says, "What she, she has prepared my body beforehand for burial. I find this beautiful because on Sunday morning, when Christ rose again, there were a lot of precious, precious women that loved Jesus Christ a lot that went to the tomb early on Sunday morning to prepare Jesus' body for burial, didn't they? They were there. And wow, the men weren't there, but they were there. But you know what? They were a week too late. They never got the privilege to do it. Because Jesus had already told everyone, I'm coming back after three days. There's only one woman in all of eternity. Only one. That ever anointed the body of Jesus for burial. Only one. And it's this woman. She's the only one that ever got that privilege because she's the only one that ever saw the precious prize that was before her. And she came and she did something culturally which seemed unacceptable, but she did it out of love. And it says it'll be told as a memorial to her, and that's what we're doing today, not because we're praising her, but we're saying we have that same opportunity today. We have what God's given us. Don't look at what God hasn't given you. Who cares about that? What has he given you? Because that's what he wants. But notice the verses that come right after. And this is where we're closing. Look at the verses that come right after. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. When I come to this passage with Judas, and I read what he did in relation to her, notice everything that she had in the sense for him. And now was Judas doing. Judas is trying to get as much as he can for Jesus. It's the complete opposite And yet, is it? Because I'll ask myself a question and you can listen in. Nathan, how often do you betray Jesus Christ for far less than 30 pieces of silver? How often the only thing you get, Nathan, is the approval of someone? Or You don't get their sarcastic comment. Or maybe you don't get a threat on your life. Or maybe you don't lose the comfort of your home. Or maybe you don't lose the comfort of job security. Or maybe you don't miss out on a promotion. I don't know. But how many times do we betray Christ for far less than 30 pieces of silver? Sometimes I wonder if we put ourselves into the wrong characters in Scripture. Sure, I would love to be the the Marys. I would love to be the Mary Magdalene. I would love to be these characters that are praised in Hebrews 11. But sometimes I wonder if I'm far more a Judas Iscariot, taking advantage of Jesus, taking advantage of the Word of God, rather than surrendering altogether to it. See, we have a priceless treasure. In fact, it's a beautiful song that Fanny Crosby wrote, but it was never published. In fact, it was left, I think, at Moody Bible College. There's about, uh, I think, six thousand hymns of hers. She wrote, I think she wrote like 10,000. I think so. I think 6,000 is the right number. Maybe it's 2,000 in this vault, but there was thousands in this vault that were put in Moody Bible College that were never put to song. Okay, and there's a recent one called uh, uh, "I Have Found the Priceless Treasure" and it's Jesus Christ, my Lord. And it was recorded by Ernie Haas and Signature Sound. Beautiful because they just pulled like 12 out of the vault and had different artists record them. And when I heard that song, I thought of this story. I have found the priceless treasure. And my question is, is have we found that priceless treasure? Because when you find the priceless treasure, that's when nothing you give will ever be too much for him. And here's the thing. And this is as I think about Judas Iscariot, as I think about this woman, I close with the example of one more character from Scripture. You don't need to turn there, but the character is only mentioned three times. And his name, a name mentioned in passing. The first time, the first two times he's mentioned, he's mentioned as Paul's co-laborer. And then the next time he's mentioned as somebody who fellowshiped in chains with Paul. In other words, he was not afraid to be identified with even the prison cell of Paul. This guy was bold. This guy was willing. This guy had zeal. But unfortunately, he's mentioned three times, not two times in Scripture. And the third time is in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10. And Paul says, and my friends, Paul is about to be killed for the name of Jesus Christ. He's already said that I finished the race. I've kept the faith. And finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will give to me on that day and not to me only, but all who have loved his appearing. He said that. And then a couple verses after he says that. He says these oh, so sobering words in verse 10, he says, and Demas. I write it in the front of my Bible, every Bible I have, I write this verse because it's a warning to me. You might start out well, but it doesn't mean you finish well. He says, Endemus has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. You know, it's very interesting. It tells us all those details. Because Thessalonica, why there? I think Paul was saying more than Thessalonica. I think he was saying, do you know what Thessalonica means? It's two words. Nike means victory. We got that. We know it. We have shoes that wear it, right? But you know what Thessalos means? It means empty. See, here's the thing. Demas left Paul and he went and he was a winner. But he wasted his life. He won by wasting. I look at so many of us, I look at myself and I think, man... In the eyes of so many people, I'm winning, I'm winning, I'm winning, I'm winning, I'm winning, I'm winning, I'm a winner. Who cares? I'd rather be a waste in everyone's eyes and be able to say, I finished the race. I've kept the faith. And finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but all who have loved His appearing. See, he, he, he left Paul to go win empty victories. Are, are we a bunch of winners in this room winning empty victories? Are we those that the world will say, yeah, you're wasting your life because you found the priceless treasure. May we see Christ for who He is. And when we do, the only reasonable response will be, take my life. Take my all. Take the best I have. Take all the best I have. And I don't care what the world thinks. Because I found what I was searching for. And I'm eternally satisfied. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Lord, I take this as a warning to myself. I take Judas as a warning. I take Demas as a warning. And I take this woman as an example. And Lord... I recognize that we have but one life to live. One life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when my time on earth is through, O oh Lord, how happy I'll be if my life has been poured out for you. Oh God, I pray that every bit of who we are would be poured out as a sweet smelling aroma on the altar of your glory that we might hear those same words that I believe Paul heard, well done, my good and faithful servant. God, I really don't care about the applause of people. I want the approval from you. I just pray that we would please be blinded by the lies of temporal recognition and temporal comfort and temporal pleasures and show us eternity. That we don't look at the things we see, but the things we don't see. Because the things we see are temporary, the things we don't see are eternal. Open our eyes to eternity. In Jesus' precious name, I pray all these things. Amen. Amen.